0: Hello, Creative Giants. Today's episode is a rerun of one of my favorite episodes, episode three with Seth Godin. We're doing a rerun today for several reasons. One, I wanted to share some of our past episodes that were fantastic with new listeners who may not have scrolled all the way to the bottom of the episode list to see this one. Two, I think it's time for everyone to reconsider how they're not picking themselves And three, I wanted to remind people thinking about putting their art out there, whether their art is a podcast, a blog post, a book, a new initiative at work, music, or whatever, that it always amounts to just putting it out there and then doing it again. We've come a long way with the Creative Giant show, so much so that the audio and my discomfort in this episode makes me cringe, but the chief thing is that we started and I'm so grateful for everyone for sticking with us. As always, I hope the content and the example helps you pick yourself and get your art out there. We're keeping the original intro with the episode two. So with just a little more ado, here's episode three of the Creative Giant Show. Ready? Let's do this.
1: Welcome to the Creative Giant Show where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey.
0: If you're struggling to keep up with processing your email, SaneBox might be just the tool you need. It has saved me hours of time each month, and the amount of peace of mind I get from it is priceless. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all of the junk so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's this great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. One and done. Just how we like it. Because email can be such a bear and keep you from finishing the stuff that matters, we worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit sanebox.com forward slash giant and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two week free trial. You don't have to enter the credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Again, that's sanebox.com forward slash giant. Hello, Creative Giants. This is Charlie Gilkey, and I wanted to take a second to really introduce the this podcast. This one is a special one for me because it's with my mentor from afar and long-term, uh, long-time hero, Seth Godin. And there's a story behind this particular podcast. Um, I had scheduled this meeting with Seth far in advance and I had some um, office spaces laid on so that we can do the recording. Well, when I got there that morning, because of coordination and a lot of things that I still don't quite understand, those offices were not available. And I found this out about an hour before actually meeting with Seth. So I had to do a lot of last minute running around trying to find another office place in New York City, which on the one hand is easy to do. On the other hand, it's hard to do when you don't live in New York. So I had just gotten everything squared away and ran back to meet Seth at our location. And we had to run from one building to the next. And I'll run not so much like running a full piece but it was kind of cold and we were walking briskly briskly and Seth had a speech that he was given after this podcast so he was being really gracious about all of this as he always is in between that transition between the the first place and the place where we ended up going Seth started asking a lot of questions about what I was working on and just sort of the chit chat that happens and if you've ever met Seth he's brilliant he's um, really humble but it can also be pretty intense and I say that in the most loving way because sometimes I can be like that too. And um, he started asking a lot of questions and our conversation actually completely altered the way that I thought the, the conversation was going to go. And rather than trying to stick to my list of questions and the preparation, I said, screw it, you know, this is a really important conversation. And um, I wanted to extend the conversation that we were having because it was so relevant and it was so on point. So that's where a lot of the randomness of the conversation came from. And you could probably tell that I was, in this particular interview, I was a bit disheveled because of everything that went on and because I was just really leaning into, into it and, and being open about what we were talking about, but also trying to get um, some really good, um, insightful, transparent conversations from Seth. The office that we ended up going to had a pretty bad air conditioning situation going on. And so when we did the audio engineering, Seth um, wasn't as crisp and clear, he's a bit muffled on there. And, um, you know, we had to really think about what we were going to do with this interview because it's not at the level of premium pro sound that you're supposed to have with podcasts. I've got air quotes going on so that you can, you know, premium pro sound. I listened to it again um, just a little bit earlier, and I decided to override some suggestions to not share it because it's so powerful. Um, it inspired me that day. that That conversation is one of the two or three conversations that led to me making um, a lot of brave choices last year, producing the or finishing the small business life cycle, and really doing a lot of cool things last year. And I just listened to it again, and it still has that grip. So. Sometimes you make art, and you can polish it, you can do all sorts of things to it, but sometimes it's just rough and raw, and it's still worth experiencing. And I believe that's true of this podcast with Seth Godin. This particular conversation also altered some of the ways in which I thought the show was going to go. I had originally intended that it was just going to be an interview thing, but after talking to Seth and then talking to Jonathan, and then later talking to Pam and talking to some of the other people, recognize that um, it's been more fun for us as the people on the show, and I think it's going to translate to you as a listener that they're actually conversations and jams and riffs as opposed to me just talking to Seth about what he's doing because our point to the people that I'm picking to go on the show, our point is not just to focus so much about what we're doing but to actually help you do what you're trying to do in the world, to use my own language, to start finishing the stuff that really matters to you. So this is a really special podcast to me, and um, I appreciate you for listening to it, and I hope that you have a good experience with this piece of art too. Hi, this is Charlie Gilkey from Productive Flourishing, and I am excited to be here today with Seth Godin from... Seth Godin, um, just type Seth Godin, you'll get him. He's produced how many books now? Twelve bestseller. Seventeen. Seventeen bestseller books, best-selling books. I'm so excited that I can't talk right. This is a live conversation. He's sitting right across from me, and we've figured out, you know, an office kind of here at the last minute. So if you hear some background noise, we're just going to deal with it and make art anyways. Um, and so I'm just going to jump off with with how I expected this to go. See, here's the funny thing about this, right? I had kind of all right, we're going to talk about The Icarus Deception, your new book, um, and talk about the connection economy and making art and making meaning. And while we were walking over to this, Seth started asking me why, um, what I'm working on. And so I told him I'm working on my book proposal. I'm at that stage of the book proposal process where it's just not fun. Um, and so he started asking, why are you doing it that way? There are other ways to do it. And so I think the thing that I heard from that is, why are you doing something where somebody else has to pick you? when you can just pick yourself. Exactly. So um, expand on that a little bit more, just for people who may not have have read Icarus Deception and and what we're talking about with the pick yourself um, thing.
1: Well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, The thing about goldfish is they have no idea how much water is in the tank, because there's always been water in the tank. Mm -hmm. We are goldfish in the sense that we grew up in the industrial economy. Everyone who's less than 90 years old grew up in a world where wealth was created by industry. Mm -hmm. Not by risk, but by industry. And industry is about uh, hiring people to do what they're told and have them do what they did yesterday, but faster and cheaper. Mm -hmm. So school was all about learning how to sit still for 10 or 12 hours, do what you're told. That uh, our economy is built on this model that says, filling a slot in an org chart is good, filling a slot higher up is even better. So you should go to law school because law school gets you a, a pass and you end up higher up on your chart. Even musicians, poets, novelists, we say to those people, you have to be picked. You have to be picked by Random House, you have to be picked by HarperCollins. you have to be picked by Oprah Winfrey, you have to be picked by Poetry Magazine, whatever it is. And if you get picked, you are worthy. I am surrounded by people who have either won great literary prizes or want to. Have either been by great uh, publishing houses or want to, who have uh, been chosen to speak in front of 10,000 people or want to. And it's very easy to believe that you are unworthy if you are not picked, and that being picked comes with it all of this really good stuff. And while that might have been true, I'm not sure, it's not true anymore. And that the people that we look up to now, you know, Jeff Bezos, Worked for the biggest program trader in New York City. Picked himself, got in the car, and he and his wife drove across the country and he started a company that no one wanted to succeed. That no one was rooting for and no one picked. Mm-hmm. And that is how we got Amazon. And we look at Amanda Palmer, who is changing the music industry because she picked herself. That, uh, industry after industry, the people who are doing essentially, uh, groundbreaking work, are not waiting for an institution to anoint them. My friend Shepard Ferry got arrested 30 times picking himself, putting his art on walls. It's only now that his work hangs in Mocha and the National Portrait Gallery, right? Mm-hmm. But he didn't wait to get picked. He picked himself. Mm-hmm. That's what the internet does. It gives you a microphone and says, here, pick yourself.
0: Okay. You know, it's been interesting to be just slightly on the outside of the picking fence, you know, where you've got the platform, you've got the connections, you've got everything you do. And it seems like, especially with the book publishing industry, that we're, we're at this point to where there is still some advantages from the old way, and there's still a lot of the advantages of the new way. And when people talk to me about this, I'm like, look, what I can tell you is what I see today, six weeks from now, it could be radically different because we're at this sort of tipping point in the picking game.
1: Yeah, it's just not true. It's not true, no, tell me about it. Letting the resistance run wild here. Okay. This is something I know about, right? Okay. And I know most of the people listening aren't in the book publishing business. But mm-hmm. Let me be really clear. Every day, two books show up in my office. Every day, 3,000, every week, 3,000 books get published in this country. Mm-hmm. The typical American buys one book a year that almost all the books that get sold are just a few. Mm-hmm. And most books don't get sold. Mm-hmm. That if we look now in the digital book world, it's going to not be 100,000 books published, it's going to be a million books published. Mm-hmm. So with all these millions of books out there, if you're hoping that a stranger will go to a store, by the way, the stores are in a <laughs> you find your book, a cover you didn't make, say, I love this cover judge the book by its cover, go to the cash register, pay money, go home, read it, and tell a friend, the odds of that happening are now basically zero. And the book publishers know this. So they are way more likely to publish a lousy book by me than a great book by you. Because at least a lousy book by me has a shot that transaction Mm occurred. So if you were trying to make an impact, what you do is you realize that the wrapper that the book comes in, the paper, the dust jacket, the whole cultural uh, impact of it is available to you for $2. That's what it costs to have the same printer that Simon Schuster uses to print your book. You print 5,000 of them, you figure out the 5,000 people that need to be impacted, and you mail them the damn book. Because that has way more impact than hoping that those 5,000 people are going to bump into your book in the store. And don't even get me started about buying your rant on the bestseller list, which is crooked, and no one who matters believes it anymore anyway. You know, it was great for Malcolm when he ruled the bestseller list, and I am not, by any means, diminishing the benefits I've gotten out of being early. But now everyone else is late. And it doesn't make sense to race after those slots. Those slots have been filled. We're way better off making your own impact with other tools. Just last thought on this. When I do a video, it is likely it will be seen 100 times more often than when I write a book. 100 to 1 difference. When I write a blog post, every one of my blog posts has been read more than any of my books. Right? So mm-hmm. there's lots of ways to impact the world. Chopping down trees doesn't rank up there, I don't think.
0: I'm going to leave some silence so that both I process that and everyone else listening to <laughs> this processes that. I was working on my book proposal last Wednesday, no, last Monday. And I was doing the marketing section of it, right? So you're filling out how you're gonna do this. And from my background, I can't make a plan without doing a cost assessment Mm -hmm. of what it's gonna cost to do it. And it ended up being about $22,000 to to pull a bestseller launch off and do all the things that you have to do anymore. And (laughs) I immediately kind of freaked out about this. I was like, oh, okay, that means unless I get a significant advance, (laughs) which is unlikely, um, I've got to sell 22,000 dollars or 22,000 books to be able to break even. And I got really squirrely. And so I emailed my my wonderful friend and sister, Pam Slim, and I was like, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. <laughs> and she writes, and you know, Pam, if you're listening to this, I hope it's okay. That, that Pam, I'm, you're awesome. Pam, you're awesome. And so she writes back and she's like, well, there's these all, the, all these other things. And she's like, the resistance and the shadow, Charlie, is coming out. And I said, you know, Pam, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure because I look at all the other ways in which I can accomplish my same goals. And I don't know that I want to play that game anymore. I don't know if I want to play the game where I devote all of these resources to be picked and to be, you know do the whole thing for the next 18 months of my life, especially since right now I'm finishing up a traditional uh, excuse me, a self-published book that started from a keynote that I had transcribed, that I edited a little bit more, that people have been pestering me to get done. And I'm like, you know what, I'm not gonna do it for that. I can get this done by the end of March. And I just want it out there and want it with the people. So there's this duality going on right now where I see, okay, I've got this major flagship book that that has reasons, I think. Okay, so Seth and I did our normal chit chat of like, hey, how's it going? And then he immediately launched in this and I'm like, oh man, now I'm having to rethink all this over again. I really
1: appreciate that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wanna just broaden this before we move on. Yeah. The question is, what are you going to do tomorrow that's going to make you more connected in a more important way than you did today? Mm-hmm. And if every day you leave a better net of connection that matters, not the trading up, I'll lunch with you if you'll lunch with me, thing but actual, I would miss you if you were gone, Right? then the opportunities become clear outside the package of this device and the economics of bringing this device into the world. Mm -hmm. That when uh, Hugh McLeod started, you know, his career is, I think, the, the most relevant to people who are listening to the conversation we're having. He started in pubs drawing business, cartoons on the back of business cards. Then he handed out more cartoons on the back of business cards. Then he scanned them in and put them on the net for free. And then people emailed them to people, and then he wrote, Uh, Something for Change This, which is a a website that I started years ago, Mm -hmm. and it became the most popular article ever in the history of Change This. So if you look at all of these steps, these aren't steps of how will I one day get Penguin to publish my book. That's Mm -hmm. not a goal, it is a tactic. Mm -hmm. The goal is do I have something to say, or a method of teaching, or a form of media that I can put into the world, calling it my art, Mm -hmm. and knowing or hoping that it will touch people in a way that causes them to change. If you do that, the revenue will take care of itself. Okay. So,
0: I hear you. There's also this point in which, and I know my resistance is running wild on the air. Um, I would say that, say, two, three years ago, a Hugh McLeod was an outlier to, to what could be done. What I'm sort of hearing now is that the world has changed And this is more available for everybody. You don't have to be an outlier for these types of things to happen because you just just have to be a genius. You just have to be a genius. So tell me a little bit about being a genius. What do you mean by that?
1: So the word genius, um, and you you can uh, check out the the TED Talk uh, on this, is genius comes from the ancient Greek. And the genius was the voice that everyone has inside of them. Mm-hmm. and that our job is to let the genius out, mm-hmm. that to, the job is to let the genius speak. And so we corrupted that to say Albert Einstein is a genius and you're not. No, we're all a genius because when you were three, you did an oil uh, finger painting that no one had ever done before. Mm-hmm. And when you were five, you told a joke that was original and worth hearing. Mm-hmm. And when you were nine, you cared about somebody in a way that they hadn't even cared. And then somewhere along the way, we beat it out of you. But we're all geniuses in the sense that we are capable of seeing a different path in some sector of what we do. Mm -hmm. And that is what I call art. Art isn't painting. Art is this act of letting your genius out, saying, this might not work, and doing it in a generous way, Mm -hmm. right, that um, will touch people. And if you're looking for the talk, it's Elizabeth Gilbert's TED Talk, one of the best TED Talks ever.
0: I agree, it's a wonderful talk. So, as I was reading um, Icarus Deception, and I think I heard you say it, and I think I heard you read it, and, you know, this is the problem of when you read a man's books, you know, back to back, it's like, where, where did I hear him say that? But I, I remember, or at least I think I remember you saying that there was, this book scared you, to put this book out scared you, um, but I don't think you told why it scared, why it was so scary for you. So, what was it, what was it about Icarus Deception that scared you?
1: I've reached a point, uh, due to longevity, where if I wanted to write Permission Marketing Handbook or Purple Cow Volume 2 or How to Start an Idea Virus, no one could say I had no right. I've earned the right to write those books. Mm -hmm. And someone could say this book didn't help me, but no one would call me a fraud. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not what digress deception is. Digress deception is personal and it's unproven, and it's has been a year's worth of research and reading and writing and thinking and connecting with people. But I have no right to write this book. I am no, I'm not entitled to write this book. This isn't my turn. And some people stood up and said, no, you're a fraud. You shouldn't have done this. And um, that's not easy to hear. But, the, you know, what Steve Pressfield taught me is, it's okay for me to say back, it's not for you. That's okay with me. It's not for you. Mm -hmm. and I'm not keeping track of the people who didn't get the joke. I'm keeping track of the people who were glad I wrote
0: Mm -hmm. it. Besides fear and resistance and displacement from those people who said you don't have a right to say this, what do you think is the real motivation for them? I mean, in what way would you have had a right to write this book?
1: Well, I can't start figuring out how to justify that hominem attacks from critics. They're really good at that. (laughs) I mean, you know, if you look... uh, Two days ago, Ted posted Amanda Palmer's talk, mm-hmm. and I was privileged to, to talk with to her before she did it. And you read these reviews, the, the comments, these people are idiots. These people shouldn't be entitled to the oxygen you and I are breathing. And they're attacking her for this, and they're attacking her for that. They weren't on stage. They didn't do what Amanda has done. They didn't do the Kickstarter. So after you've done those things, yeah, by all means, bring it on. But you can't. I don't read my Amazon reviews. I don't have comments on my blog because if you don't get the joke, I'm really sorry. But that doesn't mean you have to bring
0: me down. Hmm. Yeah. What I really appreciated about the book was, as far as scope of thought, this was the the biggest scope. Right? You're you're making a macroeconomic argument that you have not made before, right? So yeah. the other books were within the paradigm. Sure. And this one, and so I really did appreciate that. And so um, I was like. Because I've heard you talk in different places, I've heard you slide slide the macroeconomic stuff in. And so I was really appreciative and I got the joke that, okay, he nice. went there, so thank you for going there. And I was also sort of sitting in your shoes in the sense of, you know, I've got a I've got background in philosophy and when you come out and you make a macroeconomic or political or sociological argument, sure. you ruffle a lot of feathers, right? right. People, it scares people Yeah, People can disagree with the tactics and what you're talking about, but when you come and say this entire paradigm is yeah. messed up.
1: Well, and I'd even go beyond that. You know, I did, one of the most popular posts I've done this year was called Those People. And it was really personal. Um, And it was about uh, a woman at a community college who's written off basically all of her students because they don't look like her, they didn't grow up like her, and they're not entitled to do what they just have to do. And I I was fascinated because I got some feedback that I expected, which is from people for whom I touched and know and, and who I supported but I also got feedback from people who were angry at me and I finally figured it out it's because I took away their excuse that they liked (laughs) knowing that they had been pigeonholed because if you're pigeonholed you get to stay in the hole Mm -hmm. right and that if you say no no anyone is capable of standing up here's a microphone if you want to talk talk no one's going to pick you suddenly you're on the hook because you can't complain anymore about being pigeonholed yeah you can just pick on the internet no one knows your dog yeah Yeah.
0: So I was at a workshop this last weekend, and when when I do the workshops in the way that I teach it, there comes a point, because I help people with planning and figuring out and getting them the certainty and the clarity, there comes a point in which like half the people will start to break down and and tear up, and they don't understand what just happened. And what I tell them is is an analogy to what you just said, is that now you know that you don't have the excuse of not knowing what to do and when to do it and how to do it. You know exactly what needs to be done. And it removes all of the BS you've told yourself, and it disarms resistance, and now you
1: <laughs> and it makes you miserable. Like you know, my problem now is I put anything I want on my blog, and no one can tell me I can't. So why aren't I doing more? And why aren't I being braver? And I can't blame it on this graphic designer or this publisher. I can do whatever I want, right? The ebook I, you know, I wrote an ebook about school called "Stop Stealing Dreams," and between the day I finished it and the day I got read by a million people, or four days, right? Because I can, and so can you. That's the key thing, and so can you. And that's really frightening, because now who's going to blame Yeah.
0: Why is it that you think a lot of weirdos are scared to succeed?
1: Well, why are you singling out weirdos as being scared to
0: succeed? I'm singling out weirdos largely because of, of my audience and people who are going to listen here who are outliers or who are just a little bit different or they've got some art that doesn't fit in and they feel they aden- well, oftentimes will identify themselves as weird. Um, but So let's let's generalize it. Why do you think people are scared of, of being successful? Yeah, I think
1: you have to generalize it because we're all weird. Right? And yeah, we're all weird. Yeah. And um, a lot of weirdos are using their weirdness as a way to hide. They say, well, I can't be expected to succeed because I'm a weirdo. So it's a resistance again. Mm-hmm. Everyone is afraid because fifty thousand years ago in the tribal villages, if you spoke up against the chief, he might throw you out. If he threw you out, a saber-tooth tiger was gonna So the best way to survive is keep your head down. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, worked on the factory floor in nineteen fifty four at Ford Motor Company. And you say to the boss, I don't think this rear view mirror is hooked up there, right, you, you know, you're in big trouble. So there's this culture of don't speak up. And in most you know, non-democratic uh, places, speaking up, again, a bad idea. You, you, know, you, you can read Fahrenheit 451 in 1984 as celebrations of heroes, but there are also tales of what happens to you when you speak up. It's not always so good. So for all of those reasons, there's this cultural imperative to keep your head down. On top of which, Henry Ford layered will pay you if you fit in. That was new, but he added it. So the way you get ahead and get rich and get a house and get a storage unit and get debt is by fitting in. So our instinct to speak up is fighting against all of those things. And that's why it's scarce for people to say something. You know, if you read uh, anybody's Twitter feed and then you read the retweets, retweets never say anything. They just retweet. So what's happening is one person says something that's sort of interesting, and then a 1,000 people sort of repeat it. Those 1,000 people added no value to it. They're like a, a repeating transmitter on some FM network. That they're all capable of commenting on that person. I agree but, I agree and, but they're not. Because it's easier to pretend to do social media than to actually be someone in media. And the way you be someone in media is you say something worth hearing. And that's hard, but we can practice it. So you can write a blog under another name that no one reads. And then after eight weeks, if you've been writing it every day, you have 56 posts. Maybe now you have the guts to put it under your own name. Or even not. And spread it and see what happens. That all of a sudden we can call our own bluff and say, I am actually capable of touching people. I'm actually capable of singing or dancing or writing or instructing or conceiving. And I can put it in the world. Mm-hmm. that's new, but I
0: think we're still having something. Okay, so something that occurred to me as you were talking is there's the freedom to have an impact. There's the ability to do there. And sort of weaving in something that you said with all the, all the potential that you do, there's also a responsibility aspect yeah, of it. Okay. So, the obligation to. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that, because I imagine at this point, you're absolutely right. You can do anything, right? And you're at the point to where or are you at the point where you feel that there is a responsibility now, to say something worth saying, to do something worth? Oh
1: yeah, I felt that way for a long time. I mean, you know, I I do work with the Acumen Fund. I've been to uh, the Kavira slums. I've been to India a few times and stuff. I won the lottery, right? I wasn't born in 1880, and I wasn't born, um, you know, building pyramids somewhere, and I wasn't born with some heart defect. Mm-hmm. What are you gonna do with that? What are you going to do being born in the right place at the right time with the right parents and the right opportunities and a thousand lucky breaks? Right? Well, some people just take credit for all of it and go buy a house in the south of France and pretend that they're smart. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in that. I am well aware of how much debt I am know, I'm in debt to Pam Slim, and I'm in debt to you, and I'm in debt to lots of other people in the world. And if I can repay it just a little, that makes me feel better than walking away from it.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing because it's funny because you started and was like, how many best-selling books do you have? And you have 17, right? Um, And at the same time, I really appreciate the humility to say, you know what? You have those books because of the tribe, because of those people, and you have a responsibility to keep going. Um, And I was thinking about this this morning. I was thinking of questions that I was going to ask you. And questions that I get asked, you know, is what makes you, like after you get a certain level of success, keep doing it? And there's two questions, really, right? There's one is you can't not do it, right? If you're really in your genius zone, then you wake up and it's like asking why somebody should breathe. It's like, God, oh, this is who I am and part of who I am. But there's other part of the responsibility is that there's something that's still yet to be said. There's something that's still yet to, or yeah. that I haven't said to the right people yet that can drive you on.
1: I want to say that one way we get in trouble is by misunderstanding success. Are we talking about Robert McNamara's definition of success, which is that I was obedient, came in every day, and climbed the corporate ladder. Are we talking about the TV executives' version of success? I mean, you know, if you talk uh, to the guys in Hollywood, they are always broke because it doesn't matter how many Academy Awards they won or how much the box office was; they still haven't gotten the next hypothetical external measure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I remember I was doing a seminar years and years ago. And in the middle of it, someone handed me the Times Bestseller list, and my new book was on it. I got really sad, and the reason I got sad was nothing changed. And I saw this thing that I had ostensibly been working so hard for, and I was the same. I, th- th- this wasn't some win. This wasn't some everything changes now. The fairy godmother is here, and every little problem that's been bothering me—it was the same. And so I stopped on that day measuring success by any of those measures. I like those measures because they let me do it again, but that's not why I'm doing it. And so once you start defining success in a way that aids the work as opposed to stunts the work, then the work gets better, right? That if I can say this interaction with someone opened a door for them, which made it like that they're gonna teach somebody else, that makes it easy for me to do my work again, right? <laughs> so that's what I'm keeping track of with success. I'm not keeping track of, did that person who didn't used to like me like me now? And did I shave certain numbers off some bestseller status? Every friend I had who's an author. I've had this conversation of the two things to do with Amazon, and one, don't read the reviews, and two, don't check your bestseller status. Because every minute you're doing those two things, are major of reminding yourself you're not worthy to write another book. Yeah. That's powerful. So,
0: we've said a lot today and we're going to have to start wrapping up. When your work gets out there in the world, and, and we've kind of alluded to this earlier, there's the impact that we kind of want it to have happen, and there's the, the what comes across, and then there are the things, that the misunderstandings, misbeliefs, things like that, that go out there. And generally, as an artist, you have to let all of that go, right? Because you can't get caught up into that, that cycle but I am curious, of the many things that, that people project back onto you, what do you find the most disturbing or unsettling,
1: and why? Well, I'm not sure I'd use disturbing or unsettling, mm-hmm. but I would say that when people look to me to either pick them or to certify that they're on the right track, it, it frustrates me because I think that's not my job. And no one hired me to do that, and I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask. When I was uh, 18, I had an accident skiing and I wrecked both my shoulders and I got surgery on both And if I move my arm a certain way, I feel a certain pain. And that pain tells me don't do damage. Mm-hmm. I would really like people who are listening to this to think about the feeling they get before they do something brave. The feeling that we get before we ship something that might not work. Mm-hmm. That feeling has a color. Tone, temperature, and flame. If you can imagine that feeling, and then you think about how often in your day you feel that, and then choose not to pursue the thing you were thinking about, you've just pinpointed the key, which is, what I try to do when I'm fully alive: is feel that feeling as often as possible. And I seek that feeling out. Not the shoulder feeling, I hate that one. But this feeling of, I'm right on this edge, it might not work. And that's the feeling that a skydiver has that gets her back on the plane the next time, that moment in between being in the plane and not being in the plane, (laughs) right? It's the feeling that a good public speaker feels in between the time uh, they've got butterflies and they're being introduced to when they're totally in the zone. It's that little gap between the panels and the cartoon, that feeling. And what I've found is if someone comes to me and asks them to do the feeling for them, they're not going to succeed and I'm going to be frustrated. But if talking this through and thinking about it lets you remember what that feeling is, you probably don't need as many podcasts and self-help books as you think you need to just go feel that feeling more often. Great.
0: Great. So um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. I was really nervous this morning um, because I was like, got a meeting with Seth Godin, I want to make sure that it's good. And um, I was talking to Jonathan Fields about this this morning. I was like, you know, it's like any other speech. It's like any other thing. You get the butterflies before you go. You do the preparation. You do the best you can. And then you let it go and see what's going to happen. And um, I really appreciate you making the time to do this today. And I really appreciate you um, making it comfortable for me to be able to do this. Oh, pleasure. And so um, I was going to ask you, what's the final thought that you would like to leave people with? But I think you already hit I that. I just did he my final final. He already saw it coming. This is ultimate. why it's
1: brilliant. Penultimate is the thing before the final one. I don't know whether it, it was post-ultimate. Post-ultimate. I guess how about this? I don't know what day today is when you're listening to this. Give yourself 24 hours and ship something. And if you don't, you're faking it. But the habit of shipping something every day is one that you're really going you to got.
0: Thank you so much for being here today Seth.
1: Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for Creative Giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, Creative Giant.